Good morning, brothers and sisters. We welcome you all to this morning's worship service of our triune God. We also expend a special welcome to all visitors who have joined us here in church and to those who are with us remotely via the live stream. This morning on Easter Sunday, we can remember and celebrate the resurrection of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who after being crucified, descending into hell, rose again, conquering death so that we can now share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. May we all be comforted and encouraged through the preaching of the gospel, and may, be, may God be glorified by our worship. With the announcement of Reverend Poppy on the pulpit this morning, and this afternoon we welcome Brother Anson van Delden, a fourth-year student from the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. Before we commence, let us begin by singing from hymn 32, verse 1 and 3. Brothers and sisters, on this Easter morning, please rise and let's worship the Lord. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing from hymn 31 of the, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, God's given us his law in order to convict us of sin and also to show us what Christ has done for us, how he accomplished his victory over sin. And we're going to listen to the law this morning as it comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 5. There God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's now sing together from Psalm 86, make a confession of our sin, and also sing of the hope that we have in God's redemption for us. Psalm 86, the verses 2 and 4.
Let's now pray to God and let's ask God for his blessing over this worship service. Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to make payment for our sin and to restore us in a relationship with you. And we celebrate the fact, Lord, that after he died on the cross, that on the third day Christ rose again, that he had life in himself to come out of the grave, to come back to life, and to thereafter ascend into heaven, to sit at your right hand with power, authority, and glory. Father in heaven, we honor you for the work that you did through your Son, that you overcame sin, that you defeated death, and that you laid the basis for an eternal life for all your people. We thank you, Lord, that we may believe in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you convict us of sin, that as we know of our sin and as we confess it to you, that you promise that you overcome sin, that you're willing to forgive it and to show us grace and mercy. And Father, again this morning, we do confess our sin to you. We're sorry about all the ways in which we have offended you and all the times in which we also have sinned against the people around us. Thank you, Lord, that we could sing together from Psalm 86 that you forgive us our transgressions and that you abound in love and grace and as an act of mercy and compassion that you take away our guilt. Father, we, we honor you for your love, for your compassion, for your mercy, and for your grace. We pray now, Lord, that we may also understand the glorious future that you promised to us. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you give us a, a glimpse into something that's going to happen for all of us. One day, we who have died will come back to life. Our loved ones who've gone before us, they will rise to new life. In fact, every human being who's ever died is going to, to rise again and to stand before you. We thank you, Lord, that death does not have the final say in our lives, but that there is an eternity in store for us. We thank you that you teach us about what you have done for us, that through faith in our Lord Jesus, that we get to share in a beautiful future, in a new heaven and earth, in a place where there is no more sin and no more death. Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning and as we consider these things, that our hearts may be open to the gospel, that we understand how rich it is to know Jesus Christ, and that our faith in him may deepen. We pray that you would accept the songs that we sing and the prayers that we offer, the confession that we make, and please grant that, that through all that we do, that your name may receive much glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, brothers and sisters, I may preach the gospel to you. We're going to look at what God teaches us about the, the effect and the benefit to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to do so by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the verses 20 to 34. And to put those verses into context, I thought it'd be helpful to read the entire chapter. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can find that on page 1142 of your guest Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is futile. So your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. And then here starts our text. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That's the end of our text. 
We'll keep reading, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then this ritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So far the reading of scripture. Let's now sing together. One of the the themes that comes out in our text is that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that's the the outworking of one of the Messianic Psalms, Psalm 110. So we're going to sing that Psalm, Psalm 110, the verses 1, 2, 5, and 6.
text for this morning is the passage we read together from 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 20 to 34. Then after the proclamation of the gospel, we're going to sing together from hymn 33, the verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Well, dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, when you read through the account of the resurrection, as you find it in the gospels, then it seems like such an insignificant event. You read through... Mark or Matthew, and you have 10 verses, tells of Mary, the other women going to the tomb. They see that the stone is rolled away. They go inside and they see that no one's there. And then this young man, this angel, tells them that Jesus is risen. Go tell his disciples. And so they go off and they tell the disciples. The disciples come and they find the same thing. And then it moves on from there. You read those verses, and it seems like such, a, such an insignificant passage. If, if you're not paying attention, you can almost read over those verses without really seeing what happened there. It's a non-event. But you know, in reality, this is the biggest event in the history of salvation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the event through which God accomplished his work of destroying sin, death, and the devil. Now, the gospel writers, they don't pay a lot of attention to it, but by the time you get to the book of Acts, and especially when you work your way through the epistles, then the apostles, they spend a great deal of time reflecting on the resurrection and what an incredible event this was and what great benefits we receive through the resurrection. Now, the reality is that through the resurrection, God has accomplished incredible things. And Paul works that out here in 1 Corinthians 15. In the first verses of the chapter, he says, Christ was raised. And we know it because there's so many witnesses. There's all these people. There's hundreds and hundreds of people who saw him after he was raised to life. And then Paul builds on that. He says, you know, if in fact he wasn't raised from the dead, he says that our, our faith would be futile. He says, in that case, our preaching would be in vain. Your faith would be futile. You would still be in your sins, and we would be, of all people, most to be pitied. But then he turns it around. He says, but that's not the reality. He says, the reality is that Christ was raised. And since he was raised, God accomplished the greatest things through him. Christ has destroyed not only death, but also his enemies. What that means is that Christ is able to accomplish the purpose that God gave him to do. He's able to restore all things. And he's able to entrust all things to his Father in heaven. And then Paul builds off that. In the last verses of our text, he says, he says, you know, the question is, do you believe that? You actually believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because if you do believe, that's going to have profound impact on your life. And so I preach, we're going to consider these things. I preach God's word to you with, with this theme, Christ has destroyed death. Therefore, wake up. 
We're going to look at those two things. In the first place, that he's destroyed death, and secondly, that he calls us to wake up. So why does the resurrection matter? What has God accomplished through it? Well, Paul says in verse 20 of our text, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That word first fruits, it comes from the, the feasts, one of the feasts that's mentioned back in Leviticus 23, the feast of first fruits. What they used to do in the Old Testament times is they, when they harvested their, their olive groves or their vineyards or their fields, then the very first sheep of wheat, sheaf of wheat, the very first harvest from the trees was given to God. But that very first fruit was symbolic that there's a far greater harvest still coming. And that's also the truth of Christ's resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one who rises from the dead. But his resurrection is symbolic of the fact that there's going to be a much greater resurrection that's still going to happen. And then God shows why all people are going to share in that resurrection. He says, just as through one man death came into the world, so through one man, resurrection came to all people. Remember back in Genesis 2, God told Adam, he says, you sin, you die. And Adam sinned. And so death came through the one man. And now God tells us, Christ came, and through his resurrection, you rise, all people rise. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everyone is given new life. It's not a new idea. In the Old Testament, they spoke about that. Not often, but, but it was spoken about regularly. One passage, I'll just read one passage with you, Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then Paul says here, in our text, he says there's, there's actually a certain order about what God's going to do. He, he explains the order. Verse 23, he says, Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. That's already happened on Easter morning. Then he says, Then after that, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so the, the great resurrection of all people are going to happen on the day when Christ returns. There's a great day that we're anticipating. We're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ when God comes back to this world. And the scripture tells us that's the day when everyone is going to rise to new life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks about that. The Thessalonians were worried about the fact that their dead relatives who had passed away are going to miss out on the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, don't worry about that. He says, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. The very first thing that's going to happen when Christ appears is that all the dead people are going to come back to life, and they're going to rise up to be with Christ. And that's something that's confirmed in Revelation 20. God says there, Revelation 20, he says that the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne. He says, the sea will give up the dead in it, and death and Hades will give up the dead in them. And so literally every person who has ever died is going to come back to life. And then verse 24 describes the third moment 
So first you have Christ as the first fruits. Then you have all the dead who rise on the last day. And then the third moment, it says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there's going to be a great day where Christ passes judgment on all people. And when he has passed judgment on all things, when he set all things right, then he will entrust all things to his Father in heaven. But then our text, it takes some time to, to reflect on what's going to happen prior to Christ giving the kingdom to his Father. It says he will deliver the kingdom after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And the following verses, it, it spells out what that really means, what that really looks like. When it talks here about rule, authority, and power, he's not only referring to human people, to humans, to human power. He's also referring to the spiritual forces of darkness. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul, he uses these same words to refer to the powers of darkness. Well, God's saying here that by his death and by his resurrection, Christ has defeated the powers of darkness. It's really interesting when you, when you go into the next verses, God expands on the idea and he shows what it means what Christ has done through the resurrection. In verse 27, it says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And if you actually look at verse 27, you'll notice that it, it has these little quotation marks. It's a quotation of Psalm, Psalm 8. It's in Psalm 8, verse 6. David writes this psalm, and it reflects on the high position that people have been given. He says, man has been set over all creation. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? And then David, he, he thinks about this. He stands in awe that all creation has been put under man. You've put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the birds of the field, the beasts of, so the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, literally everything in heaven and on earth, or everything on earth has been put under man's control. Well, the sad thing is that we didn't do a good job of looking after this world. We sinned against God. We rebelled against him. We didn't take care of creation the way that God intended. And so now God tells us he sent his son to do for us what we failed to do. Christ came in order to have everything in subjection under him and to do it in the way that God intended us to always do it. And it's only after Christ accomplished his job of, of subjecting all things to him that he entrusts the kingdom to his Father in heaven. And so if you, if you think about this in the context of the rest of the Bible, then you get a bit of an understanding of what God's referring to here. Christ has dominion in the first place over creation. You know, he doesn't just have a little plot of land, a little backyard. He doesn't just have a little garden or a few animals to care for. Now, when he came into this world, literally all of creation was subject to him. And we have little glimpses of that. You have this moment where there's this big storm 
The disciples are out in the open water, and they're afraid they're going to die. And with one word, Christ calms the storm. In Matthew 8, it's in verse 27, then, then the people are they're asking each other, like, who is this? The wind and the sea obey him. And then the next verse, Matthew 8, verse 28, we're told how Jesus cast demons out of these two men. And if you read through the account of what Jesus Christ did during the course of his life, you see that he does it over and over again. He's often casting out demons. And he explains it at one place. He says, I'm, I'm despoiling the kingdom of Satan. Well, that's something that he accomplished throughout his work. He actually destroyed Satan. Hebrews 2, verse 14. By his death, Christ has destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and so delivered all those who lived in fear of death. Christ died and rose again. And it's through his resurrection, he destroyed him who has the power of death. He destroyed the devil. Satan had power up to that moment. But through his resurrection, Christ broke that power. Satan does not have the authority. Because through his resurrection, Christ overcame death. He paid for sin. And he's able to restore everyone to God. And so people are not bound by death any longer. And so it is, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, that Christ is now in heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. And then, it's in Psalm 110, the Lord kind of takes apart what that really looks like for us. What it means for Christ to, to have dominion over all his enemies. Now, Psalm 110, we just sang it together. It's, it's a pretty gruesome song. You read about these people who are shattered, these people who are, they're dominated, and they're defeated, and you, you put your foot on their necks. They're a footstool. Literally, you, you place your foot on the neck of those whom you've overcome. And that seems yeah, quite gruesome. You know, this killing, this shattering, this death, this domination. Until you understand the context. Now, these, are, these words are spoken in the first place of King David, who had foreign armies who wanted to come into Israel and to conquer them. They would conquer the Israelites. They would steal their food. They would take over their land. They would rape their women. They would take their children into slavery. And then David came in order to to set God's people free from all their enemies, to put an end to that, to destroy those who were, who were killing and oppressing the people of God. And that's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 12 tells us that Jesus has come in fulfillment to this prophecy here in, Matthew, in Psalm 110. Christ made the final sacrifice for sins. And through that, he is now reigning as the king in heaven and all his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Well, it's something that, that can give us great comfort, brothers and sisters. If it was you or me who had to fight against the devil or against one of his demons, then we would lose. There'd be no contest. Hands down, he would win. You know, we read about that. God asks Satan about Job. And Job says, yeah, 
of course he serves you because you put a hedge around him. But take away the hedge and then we'll see what happens. At the moment that God takes away the hedge from Job, then Job, he loses everything. He loses his children. His wife turns against him and he becomes deathly ill. Well, that's the kind of power that Satan has. Satan comes into Peter and he, he tries to turn Christ away from serving him. Or Satan comes into Judas, and he uses Judas to, to betray Christ to the chief priests. And so the devil and his demons, these are, these are evil, malevolent beings that have great power, and that have the, the ability to influence our lives. And the great hope we have is that Jesus Christ reigns over them, that he has defeated them, that by his death and resurrection, he has authority over them. And so they can only do, they're only allowed to act insofar as Christ gives them permission to do so. Well, Christ has defeated them. On the great day when he returns, then at that stage, he's going to destroy them totally. They are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. He's going to absolutely annihilate them. He's going to abolish them from the new heaven and earth and make them suffer the pain that that is justly due to them for what they have done. And then it's in this context that God also tells us that the final enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, you may wonder, what does that mean? How do you destroy death? Well, God prophesied that this was going to happen. This is actually another quotation, Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will swallow up death forever. What does it mean? Well, it means that after Christ returns, there will be no more death. Death will be over forever. God explains it, Luke 20, verse 23. Some of the Sadducees came and they didn't believe in, in the resurrection. And Christ explains to them. He says there will be a resurrection. Then he says that, that there won't be any marriage in heaven. And he says, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. If you are a son of the resurrection then you cannot die ever again. In that sense, you're like the angels. They will never die. They're eternal beings. But through his resurrection, God says he swallows up death. You will never die. And God spells it out a bit more clearly in Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They're abolished forever. Or in Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You understand what God's saying here, brothers and sisters? When Christ came into this world, he's not just the ruler of creation. He's not just the ruler of one nation on earth. He's not just a king of, of some great superpower. No, Christ rules all of creation. He rules all people. And on top of that, 
He also rules all his enemies. He has these powerful enemies. He has the devil and his demons who are opposed to him. Well, Christ has overcome them. He's destroyed them. By his death and resurrection, he has power over them. And they're, under his, they're subject to him. And he's also destroyed death. Literally, there's nothing in heaven or on earth that is not subject to Jesus Christ. And then the point of verse 24 is that at the end, when Christ rules over sin and the devil, when he has overcome death, then at that stage, his work is going to be done. He's finished. Because literally, he's done everything the Father has given him to do. He's going to have control not just of this world, but also of all those who seek to undermine and destroy the work of God. He will have brought them in subjection under him. And so there will be no power that exists in heaven or on earth that is opposed to God any longer in any way. And it's at that point, when he has the world in subjection under him, when everything is perfectly under God's power, that he's going to take that perfect world and he's going to submit it to his Father in heaven. He's going to give it back to God. He's going to say, Father, here's the world that you asked me to save. Here's the world that you asked me to redeem. Here's the world that at one time was living in rebellion against you, that was opposed to you, that hated you. Well, I fixed it. I've overcome all those who are opposed to me. I have them in subjection under me. And now that everything is perfect... I'm going to give it back to you. And at that stage, it even says that Christ himself will be subject to the Father. He says, I myself am going to to subject myself to you. You gave everything to me. You gave me all the power. And I used the power to do the job you gave me to do. And now I'm going to give you back the power. I'm going to hand it over to you so that you may be all in all. It's quite an incredible goal that God has. It's quite incredible work that Christ has done, brothers and sisters. It's through his death, through his resurrection, that he's accomplished the greatest thing in the world. He's redeemed this world. He's restored it to a place where it can be a new heaven and a new earth, where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain. No more devil, no more demons, no more death. It's going to be governed by justice and righteousness. It's going to be a place of joy and of love. And then God says, you get to share in that world. But the only way you do that is through faith in the Lord Jesus. You must believe in him. You must believe that this is the future. And that's what Paul gets to in the next verses. He says, the time is coming where there there will be no more sin or suffering or death or temptation or guilt or shame or grieving. You'll know the Lord. You'll be filled with life. You'll be filled with vitality. But the big question is, do you understand that? And do you live with a view to that? Do you really believe it? If someone were to look in your life, they didn't know you, they were to, to be able to see your life, to see everything that, they do, that you do, 
would they see that you believe in a resurrection? Is that obvious from your life? Or would they see that you live for the here and now? For whatever you got, for whatever you can do right here, right now? There's two ways to live. And Paul spells it out here in these verses. He says, you know, some of you Corinthians, you're living for the here and now. You're not living for Christ. You're not living for a glorious future. You don't have that view in mind. And so he tells them, you need to wake up from your drunken stupor. You can't keep on sinning. You need to realize there is a resurrection. There will be a judgment. And there is a new life. You need to prepare for that. Now, death is not the end. It's actually just the start. C.S. Lewis, he says, we're living in the shadowlands. These are the shadowlands, brothers and sisters. You got 70 years. You got 80 years. Well, real life starts when you die. Then you get to see the Lord face to face. Then you get to really live. Then you understand who God is and what God has done for you. Then you get to experience the glory and the joy of who God is and what he's done for his people. Well, Paul says, he says, if you, if you look around you, he says, you need to, to realize that, that there are two ways people can live. And he says, there's a lot of people who, who live as if there is a resurrection. And it comes out in their lives. You see it in all sorts of different ways. And then he starts off actually in verse 29 with a really curious statement. It's hard to understand. It's one of the hardest verses in the Bible. We really have very little idea what he's, what he's talking about here. He says in verse 29, he's, he's going to prove the fact that, that there, there is a resurrection and that many people live towards that resurrection. And he starts by saying, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So he says there is a resurrection. Otherwise, why would people be baptized on behalf of the dead? And then we're kind of left scratching our heads saying, what does that mean? Who baptizes another person on behalf of the dead? It seems that maybe some people did this. They would baptize, they would be baptized for someone who had already died. Well, why doesn't Paul call that out? You know, baptism is, is a personal thing. You are baptized when you believe in the Lord Jesus. It's through baptism that you confess your faith in God, that you share in the covenant community. It's through baptism that our children receive inclusion into the covenant of God. Well, that's, it doesn't make sense to, to baptize somebody who's already died. And so that, that's really difficult to, to understand what's actually meant there. There's some other people who say, well, maybe what this means is that being baptized literally also means to be washed. And so maybe what Paul's referring to here is that some people are washed on behalf of the dead. That gets back to the Old Testament ritual laws. When you touch a dead body, that you need it to wash before you're clean, before you're able to go to worship God. 
And so some people suggest that this is part of your being ritually clean before God. People used to practice that. They'd wash themselves after touching a dead body so that they wouldn't make themselves guilty in the presence of God. Who really knows? We're not really sure what it means here, brothers and sisters. The sentiment is, whatever it means, the sentiment is Christ is coming back. And since he's coming back, we don't want to offend him by the way that we live right now. And that, that sentiment, it's, it's much more clearly expressed by what Paul says later on. He, he says the next few things here that are not hard to understand. He says, if there is no resurrection, then he says, why am I in danger every hour? And he talks about in verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He says, if there's no resurrection, he says, my life, I would be really foolish in the way that I'm living my life. Because I've suffered immensely for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he talks about that, 2 Corinthians 11. He's imprisoned and beaten. He was flogged five times. That's 40 lashes minus one. They beat you within an inch of your life. Well, Paul had that five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked. His whole life, literally his whole life, he's in danger of people who want to kill him. Well, he says, why would I do that if there is no resurrection? Why would I endure that kind of suffering, that kind of pain? That makes no sense. But he says there is a resurrection. There is a future. He goes and he, he expands on that in the next verses. He goes on. He says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is a quotation back of, from in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22. You have this, this passage. Maybe I'll just open it with you. I'll read it with you here. You have this passage where the Israelites were about to be punished. They were being punished. You had a foreign nation that came in and started conquering them. And so the context of that happening, oh, sorry. So, so the context of the coming suffering, then, then he talks about how some people, they didn't pay any attention to that. It's in Isaiah 22, verse 12. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing of oxen and slaughtering of sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul says there's some people, they're not ready for the resurrection. It's coming very soon. Just like the judgment was coming on Israel. It already started happening. But some people, they kind of turned their backs on it. And they pretended it didn't happen. And they went on living as if nothing was ever going to change. Well, Paul says that's, that's what some people do. They carry on with life as if nothing will change. But he says, you know, in fact, he says, God is coming back. And there will be a resurrection. And there will be a judgment. He says, if, if there is no judgment, then it makes sense to eat and drink. 
But if there is a resurrection, then that's not the way that you want to live. And then Paul, he spells it out in the next verses, and he really calls God's people to godly living. He says, the truth is that Christ is coming back. The truth is you will be raised to life. And the truth is that you will be judged for everything that you do. And so the Lord says, you need to be careful. You need to live as if the resurrection will come. And he spells it out there. He warns the people in the last verse of our text. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying the biggest danger that you have that may lead you to be unprepared for the resurrection that's coming is the company that you keep. God says here, bad company corrupts good morals. If you surround yourself with people who don't know God, who live as if there isn't a resurrection, who live for the here and now, whose life is focused on what they can get and what they can do, then in the end, that's going to corrupt you. It's going to lead you away from God. And Paul says that's, that's what happened in Corinth. He says, to your shame. He says, there's some among you, they have no knowledge of God. Some of, some of the people in the congregation, they've drifted away from God. And they, they don't live in awareness of who he is and what he's doing. Well, it's one of the greatest dangers for us as well, brothers and sisters. You know, the people who you associate with, and also the, the influences that you allow in your life, the music you listen to, the YouTube clips you watch, the news that you read, these, these are an enormous influence in your life. And if you fill your life with those who don't know God, with those who don't believe in the resurrection, if you pursue relationships with those people, then that will lead you astray. Good morals are corrupted by bad company. It was in the old days, 500 years ago, at the time of the, res- time of the Reformation, when a young person wanted to make a public profession of their faith, there were really two questions that they asked them, two core issues. One is, do you believe the gospel? And the second one is, do you forsake the world? Well, today, when young people make profession of faith, then that first question is kind of expanded into three questions. But the last question is still there. Do you forsake the world? Are you someone who recognizes that this world is evil, that it's going to destruction? As the child of God, are you someone who withdraws from the world, who doesn't associate with that, who doesn't go along with that, who doesn't live that kind of a lifestyle? Because if you live that lifestyle, then you will share in that. You will be led astray by that. You will be corrupted by it. That's something that through the ages, till today, brothers and sisters, this is one of the core issues. This is one of the most dangerous things for us as the people of God. Every year, we lose one, two, three young people. They leave the church. Usually it's the young people, 18 to 25. And when you... When you meet with them and when you talk to them and when you go through it with them, then why do they leave? 
well, many of them, because they associate with those who don't believe the gospel. They're close friends. The things that they're interested in, the things that they follow, are all from people who don't know God. Well, this is the warning of our text, brothers and sisters. If that's you, then God says, you need to wake up from your drunken stupor. You need to wake up, because there is a resurrection, and there will be a judgment. You will stand before your king, and he will pass judgment over your life. And the Lord bought you. He laid his claim on you. He said, you're mine, and I love you, and I want to have a future with you. And so he says, don't, don't fall for that. Usually it, it starts off so innocuous, but over time people drift, and they drift further and further. And this is not just for the young people. This is for all of us, brothers and sisters. It's for every single one of us. You read through the scriptures, you see how many people in their old age, they become proud, and they also drift away from the Lord. The warning of our text is that the Lord calls us, that we believe in the Lord Jesus, that we understand that there is a resurrection, that we set our hope on the glorious future that God has in store for us, and that we live towards that future. Can you do it by yourself? No, you can't. We're sinners. The reason we often fall for it is because it's so appealing. Because in our hearts, that's something that, that resonates deeply with who we are and with what we want. And so we need our Lord Jesus to do it for us. And he promises to help us. He says, if you look to me in faith, he says, I will help you. I will do it for you. I will give you my spirit. I've defeated sin. And I've defeated the devil. And they don't have the final say in your life. And so if you look to me in faith, he says, I will use my power to bring you into my kingdom. And so the greatest calling for us today is that we may believe the gospel, that we trust that what God says is true, and that we live as those who have a view of the eternal future in store for us. Well, may the Lord give us great faith, brothers and sisters. May we live it out. And may, may we then share in the glorious future that God has promised to all his people. Amen. Let's sing together. We're going to sing from hymn 33, the verses 1, 2, 3, and 4.
Let's now call upon the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer. In our prayer this morning, we'll remember in the first place the uh, Pindari. We'll ask the Lord for blessing over the work that they're doing. And also this week, they have this uh, fundraising bike ride. So we'll pray for safety for those who are riding and for blessing over the endeavors. We'll also thank the Lord for the work that's being done at the CRTS. They um, have a number of really significant things to thank God for. One is that Dr. Van Ralty, after a snowmobile accident last year, he's, for the most part, he's recuperated. He's teaching pretty much a full course load again, and things are going well for him. We're also really grateful for the fundraising campaign. We were able to be a part of that. They raised $1.2 million to uh, help fix the buildings there. Also really grateful for the students. They have six students who have graduated and who are, or who are about to graduate and look forward to, uh, to doing some work in the churches. And then they're also really grateful to God for the, um, for the fact that during this whole COVID time that classes have been able to continue and, and nothing was disrupted. So let's also thank and praise God for the work there. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace and we honor you for the work that you've accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that Christ came into this world, that he was able to die and rise again, and that through his resurrection, he defeated sin and death and the devil and his, dominion and his demons. And we thank you, Father, that everything is now under his control. We honor you that Jesus Christ is reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that the day is coming when the final victory will be complete, where he will gather all your people into your kingdom, where he will once and all destroy the devil and his demons, and he will cast them into the lake of burning fire, that death itself will also be de destroyed. It too will be thrown into the lake of burning fire. It will, will never again inflict another person. Father, these are incredible gifts. It's, it's an incredible world that you promised us in the future. It's beyond imagining. And we thank you that, that through Jesus Christ, you promise us that we may share in this great future. We pray then that we may receive great faith from you, Lord. Please help us to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to put our faith and trust in him. And help us to live for you. Grant that we may realize that, that everything we do has eternal consequences that our work today is not in vain, but that what we do will, will prepare us for an eternity with you. And then, Lord, we pray that we may be well prepared, that we're able to flee from sin and from evil, that we may live holy lives through the power of your Holy Spirit, that in this way that, that we can look forward with great joy to the time when you return, the time where we'll come before you and we'll see you face to face. Father in heaven, we... We thank you for the great hope that we have for the future. Today, there's, there's so much sadness. You see the war in Ukraine, so much death and so much destruction, so much pain, so much grief. When we see the, also the floods out east and, and the consequences that's had in so many people's lives, when we see all the suffering in the people, the lives of the people around us, we get to, to meet with people who whose lives are caught up in, in destruction and who have profound grief and who are hopeless. Lord, we are we're so thankful that you put us in a different place, that you have shared the message of the gospel with us, that we may believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and that we have a glorious future in store for us. 
We pray, Lord, that you would please help us to share this message with others. Grant that your gospel may go out, that many people may believe it, so that all your people may be gathered in at the last day. The greatest thing, Lord, is that at that time, you are going to be all in all. You are the greatest, and your glory will be manifest to everyone. We will all bow our knees before you. We'll all stand in awe of you, of everything that you have accomplished, of the, the great justice that you have in punishing sin, and the great love that stands behind that in sending your Son to bear for our sin. Thank you, Lord, for, for this future. We pray that, that we may live towards it. Dear Father in heaven, we pray then that you would bless the work that we do these days. We just also want to bring before you this morning the, the work of the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. We're grateful that we can cooperate together with churches in Canada in educating the next generation of ministers. And we want to ask you, Lord, that you would please bless this work. We're so thankful for all the blessings that you've given. Thankful that in the past years that, that the whole COVID illness has not had a, a big impact on the, the education of the young men, but that they're able to continue. And we're grateful, Lord, also for Dr. Venerelti, that he's able to continue with his work and that he's, he's recuperating very well. Please continue to grant healing to him and, and grant that he can have a complete recovery. We also pray, Father, that, that you would accept our thanks for the, for the young men who have completed their studies or are about to take up the task in the ministry of the gospel. We ask that you would help them through the final exams and that you would prepare the way for them to preach in the churches. And we ask that, that the churches may be blessed also through their ministry. We also wish to thank you, Lord, for the, for the grounds, for the building that they have. Thank you that as churches we're able to raise some money to do some renovations there. Please bless those who hope to do the work for them. And please grant that, that when the, the new season starts in September, that it may be ready and that everything can go well for them. Father, we're so grateful for the work that's being done in educating these men. And we pray that you would raise up students, another generation of students who are interested in the ministry of the gospel. We ask, Father, that you would send preachers into your harvest, that they may be grounded in the word, that they're able to correctly handle the word of truth and bring your people to know you and to love you. Dear Father in heaven, we also wish to pray that you would bless our efforts locally to do this. We're grateful for the work of Pindari and also under his, under his wings, Especially with the work of Pindari this morning, we bring that before you, Lord. We want to ask for your blessing over it. Pray that you, you please take care of our brother and sister, Tim and Chanya DeVos, and their family. We ask that you would give them the strength and the wisdom, the endurance and the, the spiritual maturity to do the work that you call them to do. Please grant that they're able to share the hope of the gospel with these men. So much darkness that they, that they hear about. We pray that you would sustain them through that and that you equip them to be able to share the, the good news of the resurrection. Lord, thank you for, for the faithful work that they've been doing. We pray that you bless the men who come through the program, that they may believe in you, that they may put their, their faith and trust in you, and that they may share in the righteousness of Christ. We're grateful, Lord, that, that some of these men are interested in joining our church, and we want to ask for your blessing over their efforts. Grant that in, that in due time that they too can become members here. And we also pray for the, for the Pindari ride that's scheduled for this coming week. I want to ask in the first place, Lord, that you give safety to those who are driving, riding. Please also grant that there can be a, a beautiful spirit of communion together, that they can have a lot of joy and, and encouragement from one another. And we pray that this, this also may, may be a blessing for those who are coming out of darkness. 
Father, we're grateful for, for the work that's being done. Please also be with the board and with the administration at, at Pindari. And please bless the work there. We ask, Lord, that you would please take care of us as your people on this day. We ask that you please bless us in fellowship with one another. We're so grateful to be a part of a, a church community that we can know and love one another. We pray, Lord, that you give us a spirit of hospitality, that we care for each other, and that we also extend your love and care to one another in the way that we live together. Please be near to those who need you in special ways, and please bring us back again this afternoon, Lord, that we can worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the collection this afternoon or this morning is, is for the work of Under His Wings, the, uh, the outreach that's done here locally. You're going to be given the opportunity to give your thank offerings at the doorway on the way out. And then in closing, I invite you to at this time rise and we're going to sing together from hymn 68, the verses 2, 4, 6, and 8.
Receive now the blessing of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.